Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to this new series of Family Stories, a podcast written by you, our listeners. All the stories read here were sent in by listeners to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, and they reflect the way in which the war touched everyone's lives. This week's Family Stories take us from an unexpected act of humanity in the middle of the Atlantic, through raw courage on land, to an East End codebreaker and a father and son's passion for the roar of a Spitfire engine. We begin this week with this from Stuart Bertie. This is my great-grandfather's story and the story of his story. Fred Bertie, my great-granddad, was born in 19th century Dundee and tried to escape the poverty of his childhood by going to sea in a whaling ship when he was a teenager. At the outbreak of the First World War, he joined the local battalion of the Black Watch. He began his service at Neuve Chapelle in 1915 and went through Herbert Ridge, Passchendaele, Ypres, Somme, the lot. He survived. His brothers were not so lucky. After the war, Fred went back to sea as a merchant seaman, and when the Second World War broke out, he was 54. Fred obviously decided that life hadn't been hard enough, and spent the war at sea helping to bring vital supplies to Britain. And this is where the story really begins. My dad grew up in 1950s Dundee. The family had very little and Dad used to spend his days with his granddad Fred around the docks. Going down to the docks meant a pint for Fred at the Bell Rock pub and a bottle of lemonade and a packet of Smith's crisps outside the pub for Dad. Fred would do a lot for a pint. The pubs were closed on Sundays and back then only travellers could get a drink at a hotel. So Fred and my dad caught the ferry across the River Tay and walked miles along the coast to Tayport where he claimed to be a traveller all to get a Sunday pint. It was on one of these walks that Fred told Dad his story. During the war, he was on a freighter sailing from Sydney when out of nowhere the side of the ship exploded and water started pouring into the hold. Fred and the crew climbed into the lifeboats and watched the ship sink beneath the waves. They were alone in the Atlantic, hundreds of miles from land. At least they thought they were. Shortly after their ship disappeared, a German U-boat surfaced. The U-boat commander appeared on the conning tower, apologised for sinking them and asked them if they needed any food. According to Fred's story, the U-boat commander was told in rather blunt language to, let's put it this way, go away. Fred passed away in 1963 at the age of 77 and my dad found himself the keeper of the story. The thing is, Fred enjoyed telling tall stories. Was this the tallest of them all? We were determined to find out. The first clue was a newspaper cutting found in a drawer in the family home in Dundee. It recorded the arrival in a Canadian port of 19 survivors who endured five days and nights in open lifeboats on the Atlantic. They were taken to hospital with badly swollen hands and feet and exhaustion, having survived on a diet of hard biscuits, chocolate, malted milk tablets and water. The article listed the survivors 
and among them was F. Bertie. So Fred's story was true, but we wanted to find out more. Did the U-boat commander really offer help? We did an internet search through the list of 1,156 U-boats, checking their sinkings and narrowed it down to a short list of seven. We then paid a visit to the Central Index of Merchant Seamen in Southampton, where each seaman's record is held. We found Fred's. Next stop was the National Archives in Kew for the ship's records, where we began cross-checking. We arrived with a shortlist of about 50 ships, and at last a contender emerged, the SS Hartford. We had her logbook sent up and discovered she'd sailed from Sydney in February 1942, heading for the UK via New Zealand, Panama and Canada. But... On March the 29th, she was sunk 250 miles off the coast of Nantucket and 240 miles south of Halifax, Nova Scotia, her next destination. We turned to the crew list, and there it was, Fred's signature when he signed on. It was an emotional day for my dad to see that. Also included was a telegram sent at three minutes past four on April the 3rd, saying the following sailors had arrived in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, and there on the list was Seaman F. Bertie. But still, we wanted to find out about the U-boat. The Hartford was sunk by U-571, and we hoped its war diary would give more information. We were helped enormously by Jerry Mason, a retired US Navy officer, who's made it his mission to translate as many U-boat war diaries as he can, so he sent us U-571. It sailed from La Rochelle under the command of Corvette and Capitaine Helmut Merleman on the 10th of March 1942. On the morning of the 29th, it spots the Hartford. Captain Merleman decides against surfacing to attack as it's too bright. They stay beneath the waves. The hunt begins at 7am, but such is the Hartford's zigzagged course, the U-boat can't get a shot at her. Then, at 8.52, one of the U-boat engines fails, so they can't get in a position to attack. Two hours later, they're finally ready to fire. At 10.48, Captain Merleman fires his first torpedo. It misses. It's not until 20 hundred hours that U-571 is able to get into position to attack again. They've been hunting the Hartford for 10 hours. Still the Hartford is zigzagging, and still Captain Merleman and his first watch officer are struggling to pin down their target. Finally, at 20.58... U-571 opens fire again, launching three torpedoes at a range of 800 metres. 52 seconds later comes the first explosion, a moment later, another. Merman watches through the periscope and sees the lifeboats launched. Half an hour later he fires what he calls the Goudegras Grasse torpedo. At 21.35, the Hartford finally sinks. This is how Merman recorded what happened next. Surfaced. Three lifeboats occupied by 15 to 20 men drift in the vicinity. They reject my offer of rum and hard bread. After they have set their bright red and white sails, they sail on course for Halifax. They make a pretty disciplined and peaceful impression, apart from a few who had apparently fallen into the water. I went back to examine the wreckage. Cargo consists of fresh meat and butter from Australia and New Zealand. We drive through a vast field of butter cases, half pigs, calves, cattle and sheep, The 14 hours hunting down this fat roast was worth it. And there we have it. Great-grandfather Fred's tall story was not so tall after all. A few days later, one more document arrived, again courtesy of Jerry Mason, the retired US Navy officer. It was a debrief of the captain of the Hartford, Master John Tuckett Collier. This is how he described what happened. 
Just before the ship sank, a periscope was seen coming round the bow of the ship, travelling to the north, and when about half a mile away, the submarine surfaced. The officer asked the name of the ship and inquired if we wanted any food and water or medical assistance, and if we knew what course to steer for land. Personally, and especially for my dad, who is also called Fred, this was an emotional experience and one we shall not forget. We learnt about some amazing people, from Fred and the lifeboat crews, to Master John Tuckett Collier and Corvette and Capitaine Helmut Merleman. They were thrown together by the Second World War to ultimately meet as chivalrous enemies in the middle of the Atlantic. Thank you for reading this, and please carry on making your wonderful podcast. Stuart and Fred Junior Bertie. Next up is this from Mark Rainier. Gentlemen, you were talking the other day about how war comics influenced your love of history and World War II. Me too. Here's a family story that was recounted in Victor. It's about a military cross awarded during Operation Ironclad, unusually on a citation from the enemy. It involved two brothers in different regiments, unbeknown to each other, involved in the same amphibious landing, on the same beach, on the other side of the world. My father, Peter Rainier, was a second lieutenant in the 1st Royal Scots Fusiliers, while his elder brother, Roddy, was in the 1st Welsh Fusiliers. Both set out from the Clyde on Operation Ironclad in May 1942, part of a task force sent to capture Madagascar from Vichy, France, and deny the Japanese Navy the deep-water harbour of Antsiranana and control of vital supply routes. Having successfully landed in the north of the island, the two regiments were supporting each other on the initial attack. Both brothers can have been only yards apart without having any idea of the other's presence. As the action moved across the headland to the Joffre line, a defensive network of 75mm gun emplacements protecting the port, Roddy, the Royal Welsh Fusilier, was handed a bloody mangled rucksack by one of his men. It bore the owner's name, and being such an unusual one, they thought he ought to see it. It was Rainier. It was his brother's kit and with the explosion marks and bloodstains, he was certain his younger brother was dead. After the battle, Roddy wrote home to inform the family, and a memorial service was duly held. Two weeks later, with the port secured, Roddy's duties involved inspecting the wounded at the military hospital, and there, hidden under bandages, he was immensely relieved to find his brother Peter alive, if not that well. It took a year for Peter to recover before he rejoined the fray in May 1943. The regimental record of the Royal Scots Fusiliers describes what happened to Peter. One of the most effective features of the Joffre Barrier was an anti-tank ditch in which the Scots Fusiliers were already fighting along its entire length. The ditch was 7 feet 6 inches deep and approximately of equal width. It was never penetrated by the tanks and remained a trap for the infantry. Once in it, they were unable to emerge again without ladders, of which they had none, or by digging a ramp which would have been a suicidal enterprise under intense and accurate fire. Any force entering it was immobilised and robbed of observation. Peter Rainier reminisced about this infamous anti-tank ditch, saying the attackers crawled through high grass, being sprayed by machine gun fire from an armoured vehicle that prowled up and down an adjacent road. The men tumbled into the ditch and, to their horror, discovered a machine gun firing enfilade along the ditch, turning it into a death trap. Most men, in panic, scrambled back up to the grass. Rainier and three others from D Company chose to advance instead, scrambling out on the enemy side of the anti-tank ditch and advancing three-quarters of a mile to the 75mm gun emplacement. 
Rainier found himself at dawn deep in the defences, armed only with a hand grenade. Instead of taking cover, he advanced and pitched the grenade at the slit of one of the gun emplacements. The opening was protected by wire netting against just such an eventuality, and the grade bounded back, wounding Rainier, who received other wounds and was captured. This act of personal bravery won him the military cross. The documents recommending the award included the rare feature of a citation from the enemy. This was conveyed in a letter from the Vichy French to the Commandant of the Scots Fusiliers, written by Lieutenant Banda of the 3rd Company 2nd Madagascar Mixed Regiment. It told how the Vichy officer and a section of machine gunners were occupying the battlement of a 75mm gun emplacement on the Plaza Road when a lookout reported one of the enemy, Rainier, approaching the gun rampart. A rifle shot hit the man, wrote Banda. When he was several yards from the breastworks and a grenade which he was holding went off, the wounded man spoke French very well. He was hurt in the mouth by a bullet and wounded in the arm. The only arms he had was one hand grenade. He told us, and it is certainly the truth, that he had wanted to carry out an assault on the gun and open the path for your men. That action is one of a brave man. As a boy, I recall examining his scars, the bullet wounds in his arm, cheek and chest, and feeling under his skin larger bits of shrapnel that would work their way over time to the surface. He even set off an early airport security machine because of the amount of shrapnel. I once asked him about his worst war memory, and when he was most scared, it wasn't the grenade in Madagascar. The worst was the sight, sound and smell of a burning tank crew taken out by an 88mm in Bremen. The fear? Night patrol at Xanten on the Rhine. Not the heat of battle, but the continual cold terror of crawling towards German lines with the constant threat of tripping a wire or a mine at every stop. And the most awkward moment? Crossing the Rhine in boats under so much smoke, both artificial and explosive, and under incredibly heavy fire, that when they scrambled ashore, they discovered they'd landed back on their own bank. Keep up the good work. Best wishes, Mark Rainier. And I can't help wondering whether that tank that was knocked out was that of Dennis Elmore of the Sherwood Rangers on the 19th of April, just outside Bremen. Our next family story comes from Richard Rivett. Dear Alan James, first the obligatory thank you to you both and of course the Pioneer Corps behind the front line for your excellent podcast that quenches my thirst for all things Second World War, an obsession I got from my dad. After listening to your Bletchley pod, I felt compelled to drop you a line regarding another Bletchley girl, my godmother, Irene Dixon, nay Griffiths, who sadly passed away in the early hours of New Year's Day this year, aged 96. This was only 10 months after her beloved husband, Sid, who'd been a surveyor in the 9th Survey Regiment Royal Artillery and spent the Battle of Normandy surveying the landscape from church towers and steeples while being sniped at. But this is Irene's story. She was born in Whitechapel in 1924. When war broke out, Irene was destined to go and work in a munitions factory in Birmingham and so would probably never have made it to Bletchley if it hadn't been for a bout of chickenpox. During her convalescence, somehow, her aptitude for cryptology was spotted. She was never sure how she was spotted, but she suspected it may have been through her love of entering newspaper crossword and puzzle competitions. So, spotted she was and sent to Mill Hill in North London, where she underwent psychometric tests. 
After that, she was recruited by the Wrens and posted to HMS Pembroke, as Woburn Abbey was known. Irene was sent to the Numenry section, which was established to employ machine methods and automation to break the Lorentz cipher. Named after its founder, Max Newman, Irene would often converse with Max together with Jack Good, Donald Mishy, and Sean Wiley, all of whom supervised her work. Her absolute favourite was fellow EastEnder Tommy Flowers, the post office engineer who designed and built Colossus. Irene always maintained that while Alan Turing, Gordon Welchman and Bill Tutt are often the names that spring to mind when you hear about Bletchley and Enigma, Tommy Flowers' contribution has been overlooked, and yet without him the level and speed of deciphering would not have been possible. On a more human level, Irene being slightly older than the other Wrens and displaying the care and compassion that would take her throughout her life, kept an eye on her roommates. She was nicknamed Mua mother to us all, by her friend and fellow Wren, Betty O'Connell. Irene always found it amazing that a working-class Cockney girl who'd lived in a house with an outside toilet came to be surrounded by Admiral's daughters and Oxbridge Dons. Irene married Sid in 1951 and started a family. She kept true to her obligations under the Official Secrets Act and even when the 30-year rule expired, never really spoke about her work. It wasn't until the mid-90s when she returned to Bletchley to see the reconstruction of Colossus that her passion was reignited, so thrilled that at long last the efforts of her colleagues were being recognised. In 2014, when the National Museum of Computing celebrated the 70th anniversary of Colossus, deciphering its first Lorenz-encrypted message, Irene went back to Bletchley again, where she was reunited with her long-lost friend, Betty. Auntie Irene was a truly extraordinary woman, who lit up a room with her smile, had a wicked sense of humour, and had the ability to make everyone feel special. The humility displayed by so many of this generation can be summed up from a quote she gave when interviewed by ITV's from Berlin to Bletchley. At the time, there was a war on. You just accepted it. I didn't know it was a new machine. I just got brought in and shown this great big machine, and they said, you're going to learn how to work on it. And that was it. You just got on with your job. Keep up the good work on all fronts, not just the podcasts, but also the collating and sharing of family stories that shine the spotlight on the real stories of real people. Yours, Richard Rivett. Next, we have this one from Dan. Hello, Alan James. I've always hesitated about sending my family story because it seems pretty tame compared to the ones you've already had. But today would have been my dad's 85th birthday, and I've been thinking of him, and your episode with Joseph Quinn about Irishmen joining up. My family story isn't significant in the bigger picture, but it does reflect perfectly something you've both said about how the Second World War affects us today. My dad and his dad were among those Irishmen who joined up. Dad's father was a butcher in Carlo before joining the RAF as a cook, going on to serve in Burma and West Africa. I don't know much about his wartime service, but I do remember Dad telling me that he was a few days short of being entitled to a Burma campaign medal. Your time started once you had disembarked from the ship, but when the ship arrived in Burma, the enemy was bombing the docks and they couldn't get off. The Japanese were targeting the ships, so he felt he was in greater danger on board than the guys on the shore. Had he been able to get off, he would have been safer and got the medal. As for my dad... He was born in 1936 and said that growing up in Ireland meant he didn't hear much about what was going on in England. 
For him, the most significant thing that happened on the 6th of June 1944 wasn't D-Day. It was his 8th birthday, and he joined the Cub Scouts. Later, he joined the RAF along with his brothers, and while he was a boy entrant at RAF Cosford, he fell in love with the Spitfire. He remembered PT lessons running around hundreds of war reserve aircraft stored on the airfield. Dad's passion for the Spitfire sparked my own interest in Second World War aviation, and when I too joined up, I set my sights on serving on the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight. I was serving here when Dad sadly passed away. I was at the care home with him on his last day while he was in a coma when I heard the familiar griffin roar overhead and instantly recognised one of our PR-14 spits. She gave me something to talk to Dad about and it was then that I realised the aircraft that flew over was more than likely one of the very spitfires Dad would have run around when he was a boy entrant all those years ago. I never truly understood why the spit brings people to tears until that moment. In fact, thinking about it, Rings them on now, so I'll stop waffling. Serving on the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight was an absolute privilege, and I'll always be grateful for the opportunity to show Dad our spits up close before he died. Thanks again for the great pod. Kind regards, Dan. Our final story this week is from Gail Hill. My granddad, Hal Burke, was born in Liverpool in 1906. At the start of the war, he enlisted in the Royal Tank Regiment and first saw action in Tunisia in 1943. He was wounded in April of that year, and by the time he recovered, his battalion was in Italy. He rejoined the 12th Battalion, Royal Tank Regiment, part of the 1st Canadian Division, for the assault on the Gothic Line. It was near a village called Villa Betty that Sergeant Burke was ordered to pick up a company CO, a Captain George Beale, MC, from his battalion command and get him back to his company, which was under attack. The battlefield citation for what happened next reads as follows. On the afternoon of the 28th of August 1944, a composite squadron of 12 Royal Tanks was formed to support an infantry attack across the river Arzilla onto Point 146. An infantry company was pinned down in a village on the river and the operation involved picking up this company and continuing the advance onto the higher ground. The infantry company commander was at this time at his battalion HQ and it was necessary for him to move down to his company to give orders prior to the attack. All movement in daylight from the infantry battalion HQ to the village attracted very heavy mortar and machine gun fire and Sergeant Burke was ordered to take the company commander down to his company in a tank. This involved moving down a forward slope in the face of known anti-tank machine gun and mortar positions. Sergeant Burke never hesitated in his duty and having moved to the village under very heavy fire stayed with the company command until he had reorganised his troops and prepared for the attack. This NCO throughout showed great coolness and disregard for his own personal safety and his actions had great influence on the subsequent success of the attack. What the citation fails to mention is that a composite squadron of Churchill and Sherman tanks supported the attack of the Highlanders and nine of the 11 tanks were knocked out, one by a lucky mortar round going through the commander's hatch. This was not all, however, and a couple of weeks later Sergeant Burke was not so lucky. The second part of the citation reads, During the crossing of the River Murano on the 14th of September 1944, Sergeant Burke was ordered to move forward with his tank and with the leading platoon of infantry exploit the bridgehead which had been made. As he moved forward, his tank was immediately knocked out by enemy anti-tank fire. The crew were able to evacuate the tank with the exception of one member who was killed and one who was badly wounded. 
under very heavy small arms fire and mortar fire, and with the tank still being engaged by AP fire, Sergeant Burke managed to reach the wounded man and carry him into cover. This NCO showed great courage and undoubtedly saved the wounded man's life, and his disregard for personal safety was an inspiration to all who witnessed the event. This NCO was recommended for an immediate military medal on the 8th of September 1944. It is requested that these recommendations be considered jointly. Grandad never talked to me about the war, but I found out from a family member that the man killed was cut in half and Grandad had to lift his remains out of the hatch to get the wounded man out. After the war, he returned to his peacetime job of managing a tailor's in Liverpool. My memories of him were of a kindly, gentle man who adored his grandchildren. Whenever we visited, he always made extra custard for me and him to share. I still love custard to this day. There is a footnote to my granddad's story. Hal sold his medals in the 1960s. On Remembrance Sunday 2014, my fiancé Steve searched his service number online and we discovered his medals had gone through an auction house that summer. Through the auction house, we contacted the collector who agreed to sell them back to us for what he paid. I now have the honour of wearing 792-9361 Sergeant H. Burke's military medal on the right of my jacket every Remembrance Sunday in honour of him and his brave crew. That's all we've got time for this week. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the members' site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now. <laughs>